Well, again, good morning and happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. I'm telling you, you do not get nearly the credit you deserve. And I promise I'm not just saying that because I'm getting caught up in the moment of, of Mother's Day. Uh, my wife and I are blessed in that my wife is able to stay at home full time with, with our two children. Uh, and I am convinced that it is the most difficult job on the planet. And again, I'm not just saying that for hyperbole or because again, it's Mother's Day. I want to make you feel better about yourselves because I actually say that because there's probably been, my, my wife might say this is even generous, about 20 times where I have watched both of my kids for like an extended period of time, like four or five hours, most difficult <laughs> moments of my life. Like the most difficult moments of my life. Like at the end of that time, I'm just like a shell of who I once was. My wife comes walking through the door and I'm like, oh, thank God. And I just kind of like push my kids towards her. And then I inevitably go outside, take my shirt off and start smoking cigarettes. That's a joke. I don't smoke, but you get the idea. To all you moms, uh, I really cannot give you enough credit for all that you guys do. You're amazing. It's awesome that we have a day that is just meant to celebrate you. And hopefully there's at least this day, one day a year, where you get to do whatever the heck you want to do. So you want to go home today and like lock yourself in the room away from the kids and binge watch Netflix and eat ice cream and take periodic naps, do it. And your husband's just kind of have to put up with it because after all, it's Mother's Day. But whether you're mom or not, we really are excited that you're here today. No matter why you're here, no matter what it is that brought you through our doors, we're just thankful you decided to make Grumlaw a part of your week. Uh, we recognize that Mother's Day is a little bit unique uh, and that a lot of people walk through the doors of a church on Mother's Day that would otherwise never step foot into a church. In fact, statistically speaking, Mother's Day is the third highest uh, attended Sunday among American churches, only behind Christmas and Easter. And so with that thought in mind, I think we could appropriately rename Mother's Day to Guilt Trip Sunday. Because let's be honest, there's a whole mess of moms here today that guilted their kids and their husbands and their parents. I'm not really even sure how that one works. But you guilted like all these people into showing up here today because it's Mother's Day and we're going to church and you're going to like it. So go into your closet and dig out that suit that smells like mothballs. So we're going to go to church and then afterwards you better believe we're going to go to an overpriced buffet and full of a bunch of other people who are also bummed out about their outfits. But we are really glad that you're here today. And our hope is, uh, is that maybe you'll continue to give this a chance, that this won't just be something that you do like once or twice a year, that maybe you'll continue to come back here, even consider make the, making this kind of a part of your weekly routine and, and see what God maybe wants to say to you through these services as maybe as ridiculous or outlandish as that might sound to you right now. Uh, we're smack dab right now in the middle of a series, as you probably already gathered, called You in Five Years. In fact, we're entering into part three of five this morning. So it's kind of like you're entering into a movie like halfway through it. And so for that reason, if you weren't here for one of the first two weeks, we'd really encourage you to go to grumlaw.com slash messages and get yourself caught up there. Or you can find us under Grumlaw Church wherever you grab your podcasts. And that's kind of really our hope is that, that those weeks you're not able to be here, you're going online uh, and you're catching yourself up so you're not totally left in the dark. But if you did miss the first two weeks of the series, have no fear, uh, we will get you caught up to speed. The premise is really, really simple. When it comes to human beings, and you all happen to fall into that category because this is certainly not just a Christian thing, this is indeed a human being, this is a life thing, we underestimate what we can do in the long term and we overestimate what we can do in the short term. We look into the short term and we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can get so much done. And meanwhile, we completely overlook the long term and, and really think about what we could actually accomplish if we actually just stuck with it. And so the big picture, the vision that we've been trying to cast for this series is, okay, let's have you think bigger than what you could get done by the end of May. 
Let's think bigger than what you could get done by the end of 2019. Let's look forward to 2024 and really dream about what would change in your life if you really got after it and you began to trust in God like never before. Rather than just settling into apathy, Rather than feeding yourself that terrible excuse, well, that's just who I am. Let's, as we talked about last week, let's make a drastic change, but not one that just sparks up and then quickly fizzles out. No, let's instead make that drastic change and then stay the course and eventually allow momentum to take over. Because remember, and this is a central thought to what we've been talking about, future you is just an exaggerated version of current you. Guess what, if you're a stingy person now, as you get older, you will just become stingier. If you're kind and you're compassionate now, as you grow older, five years from now, you'll be even kinder, you'll be even more compassionate. If you're an angry person now, as you age, you are going to get angrier. If you're a pessimistic person now, five years from now, you will be even more negative unless you make a change unless there's some sort of intentional change that you implement into your life. And changing course, as we've talked about over these first two weeks, it doesn't involve taking these drastic, dramatic, one-time steps, but instead it takes ongoing consistency over an extended period of time, like a five-year period of time. There's a Chinese proverb that says, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And you can see the dude's name there. I'm not about to botch that up. But this is kind of an inspiring thought, right? Because no matter how daunting, no matter how lofty your goals, no matter how big the challenge that lays ahead of you, it all begins with just one single step. But this should also give us pause because this is a bit of a double-edged sword. You take one step in the wrong direction and five years from now, you could very well find yourself 2,000 miles from where you actually wanna be. Because you've traveled 1,000 miles in the opposite direction and it's gonna take you 1,000 miles to get back just to where you started and then another 1,000 to where you actually want to go. We get to where we wanna be and ultimately where we don't want to be the exact same way. One step, one day at a time. And that's really what we're gonna be focusing in on this morning, something small adding up over time, something too small to fail. Now to better illustrate this and to glean a little bit more on the subject, we're gonna jump into a passage of scripture that we find in the book of Exodus. I'm not gonna assume that everybody knows their Bible really well, but the Bible is actually 66 different books combined to form one greater book that we refer to as the Bible. And even that's kind of divided into two sections. We have the Old Testament, and then we have the New Testament. Old Testament is kind of the first half of the Bible. It documents everything from the creation of mankind, from the creation of the world, right up to like right before the point where Jesus steps foot onto the scene, at which point the New Testament kind of takes over. And within the Old Testament, we have this book called Exodus. And Exodus, as its title might suggest, documents the exodus of the Israelites out from underneath the oppression of the Egyptians. Now, the Israelites were God's chosen people. If you didn't grow up in Sunday school, you're not used to hearing this kind of stuff, they were God's chosen people. And it all actually began with one man that went by the name of Abraham. And chances are, even if you haven't spent very much time in a church before, you've probably heard of Father Abraham. And Abraham was given some pretty crazy promises by God. One of those promises was that, hey, your descendants are going to be as plentiful as the stars. And in fact, God came true on that word. But through a series of events, and we don't have time to cover all of it here this morning, I challenge you to actually read this stuff for yourself. The Bible is so rich and it's full of so much history and practical wisdom for our lives. 
But through a series of events, the Israelites found themselves under slavery to the Egyptians for a couple hundred years. So they're slaves for a couple hundred years. God finally hears their cries, and he's like, okay, I'm going to deliver you out of oppression from underneath the Egyptian. It's the whole story, the very dramatic tale of the Israelites passing through on dry ground as God literally split the Red Sea in half. Again, you guys have probably heard that story before. And once they pass through the Red Sea and the water collapses back to normal again, they're now ready to enter into what we now refer to as the promised land, this land that God would promise that generation after generation after generation of Israelites would live in this land, and they're ready to get to it. But before they're about to step into that promised land, God gives them a bit of a pep talk. Because while this is definitely going to be better than slavery, he wants them also to understand that this isn't going to be easy. That there are going to be some trials that certainly lay ahead of them. It's not just going to be smooth sailing from here. And similarly in our own lives, it's easy for us to continue in our current habits. It's it's easy for you to continue to be that angry person. It's easy for you to continue on with that addiction, for you to continue to drink. It's easy for you to come home, watch TV, eat whatever the heck you want to eat, sit back down in front of the television for another two hours, go to bed, wake up, and do it all over again and continue to live that mundane, let's be honest, not that meaningful of a life. Becoming who you want to be. And more importantly, who God wants you to be five years from now is not always going to be easy. And so God, knowing all of this, he gives the Israelites this this pep talk. And consequently, he gives this pep talk to all of us. He says, I'm going to send my terror ahead of you. And I'm going to create panic among all the people whose lands you invade. I will make all your enemies turn and run. I will send terror ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites. As excited as the Israelites were now to enter into the promised land, they knew that there were going to be battles that lay ahead of them. Because in a lot of cases, these lands that they had to go through or the lands that they were going to inherit were already occupied by other people. And in most cases, they were a greater number of people in these these other people groups. There was a bigger army. There was a stronger army. There was a more skilled army. The Israelites knew what God certainly knew, that the, that the odds were completely stacked against them. But as he references here, he says, I'm going to send my terror ahead of you. And they're all sitting there going, well, we don't know what the heck that means. Like, what do you mean your terror? He's like, it's going to be this invisible thing. It's going to kind of send them into a panic. But don't worry, you're just going to have to trust me. Which, by the way, is what faith is all about. Do you actually trust God? I mean, do you believe that God actually sent his son for you? Not you like in broad terms, but like specifically you. That God loves you so much that he would send his son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And the reality is, is once we come to grips with that one truth, trusting him in other areas of our lives suddenly becomes a far more realistic. He's saying, even, even though these armies are bigger and stronger, even though you're going to be tempted to turn and run, I'm telling you, I'm going to send my fear ahead of you. I'm going to battle on your behalf. Uh, when I was preparing for this message, this made me think of, uh, in high school, uh, I went to a school out in Bloomfield Hills called Brother Rice, and, and uh, I was on the lacrosse team there at Brother Rice, and, and the lacrosse program at Brother Rice is as dominant of a high school like athletic program as exists in the country. In fact, I looked this up, they've won 15 out of the last 17 state championships. 
Like, like that's dominance at like its height. And I remember this in high school that we would like step off the bus and we were so arrogant. I'm telling you, we were so cocky. We thought we were like the greatest show on earth. And in fact, the other teams usually thought the same thing too. It was like we had this five goal advantage before the game even started because the other team was like, oh no. We're playing Brother Rice today. There's not a chance that we are going to win. It was this fear, it was this intimidation that went ahead of us. Now, by no means am I trying to compare like the fear of a lacrosse program to the fear of God, but you get the parallel there. God's saying, you're, you're gonna have to completely trust me. There's gonna be this unfair advantage that goes ahead of you, but will you trust me? And as soon as you begin to doubt that, as soon as you look to that and you think, oh my gosh, there's no way that we're going to win. Look at all these people. We're just, there's not a chance that we can win. I want you to remember God saying my previous faithfulness. Don't be quick to forget those other moments where I have come through. Remember that whole episode where you literally walked through a sea on dry ground? I mean, you were looking to your left, you were looking to your right, and the walls were being held back by seemingly nothing, but it was just like parted. Remember those types of moments. And the same goes for our lives. When we're in these, these, these difficult seasons, when we're about to embark onto something that we know is going to be this enormous challenge, when God is telling us to take that leap of faith that we're going, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I don't know if I should actually do this, we are to recall on his previous moments of faithfulness. Starting this church has been uh, the most exciting and enthralling thing I've, I've ever done with my life. I know that this is what God has called me to, but I'd be lying to you uh, if I didn't tell you that, that it's also been the scariest thing I've ever done in my life as well. There have been so many moments o- over this last you know, year and a couple of months where, where God's asked me very clearly to do something and, and I get right up to that moment and I'm like, are you sure? God, like, are, are you sure? Because that sure seems stupid. God, if we do that, then, then this and this and this and this and this can happen. And, and I constantly have to remember back to those moments where he's been so faithful in the past. One of the things that I constantly cling to, and I've shared about this before, but it's one of my favorite stories to tell as it relates to, to starting this church, is when God called us to, to come here, my wife and I to come grant, to Grand Blank, it's not like I grew up here. It was like God, in my mind, was calling me to the moon. I I didn't know a single person that lived in this town. It's so humbling to even think about that now as as I look out at so many faces that I feel like I know pretty well now. But we didn't know a single person. And I remember thinking, God, okay, if you want me to go there, where are the people going to come from? Because I know what you've placed on my heart. I know what what you envisioned for this community. So so how is it going to happen if we don't know anybody? And by the time we started this church... There were 87 people on this core team that helped us get this thing off the ground. 85 people that came alongside my wife and I and said, hey, we're in this too. We, we, we wanna be a part of what God is doing. Recalling those moments of previous faithfulness will propel us to take those next leaps of faith. God continues, he says, but I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals would multiply and threaten you. I will drive them out a little at a time until your population is increased enough to take possession of the land, little by little. And I guarantee you that this is not what the Israelites wanted to hear. And here's how I know that, because they are human beings. And we never prefer little by little. We would all much rather have all at once. But I think there's a couple reasons why God operated this way with the Israelites and in fact continues to operate this way the vast majority of the time with all of us. Number one, 
it forces us to rely on him. Let's be honest with ourselves for a second. If God just answered all of your prayers in an instant, would you ever go back to him? Probably not. God would kind of transform himself from God into a vending machine. Instead, by doing little by little, it forces us to continually rely on him and in turn strengthens what God has wanted all along with every one of you, a relationship with him. Relationships with your spouse, with friends, with your kids, they are built little by little, not all at once. Jason is the, uh, the other pastor here on staff here at, at Grumlaw, uh, and the only reason, let's be honest, that he's on staff is because one day we are going to send him out and he's going to start a church like this as well. And we always want to have a church planning kind of apprentice in the hopper here, somebody that's going to go out and start the next one. Now, we're certainly gleaning and taking advantage of his skills while he is here, but that's the whole reason. So he can glean as much as he can while he's here, and then eventually one day he'll go out and start something similar to this. And this week we were actually talking about this, that, that it seems like right now, because it'll be about a two-year time from right now, uh, there's a lot of possibilities on the table. In fact, if you were like, kind of like drawing it out, it's like there's all these open doors that lay ahead of him. And as he goes to God daily and asks him where, who's gonna be a part of the team, and all these things are, are running through his mind, he said it was like God's just kind of slowly closing doors and narrowing his focus on the one that he wants him to walk through. And that only happens through, again, a daily dependence. We all know ourselves well enough. If God just gave us everything right now for the rest of our lives, we would very quickly, faster than we would like to admit, abandon him. The relationship would fall apart, but he longs to be our daily dependence. So instead, little by little. And then the second reason I think is you have to maintain what you obtain. God got real practical here. He's like, okay, not only are you going to go into this land that I'm going to give you, but this isn't just some vacant parcel of land. I am going to give you homes that are fully furnished. I'm going to give you cities that have already been built. I'm going to give you an infrastructure that you can basically move right into. It's ready to rock. But if I was to give it to you all at once, you wouldn't have enough people to inhabit these cities. And over time, once you actually got those numbers up, these cities would be decrepit. They'd be falling apart. In that verse, it says wild animals will inhabit the land. That's not some metaphor. He's literally like, there are going to be so many raccoons and possums that go moving into these places. You're not going to have enough live traps to take care of the problem. So instead, little by little. If you would have given all, of it, the, all to the Israelites at once, they would have been biting off more than they could chew. When I graduated from college, I took my first job working at a camp uh, in Ohio called Beulah Beach. And uh, it was my first full-time job and I didn't make very much money. In fact, I'll tell you what I made. I made $24,000 a year. Marriage was about a year away, but $24,000 at that time just felt like a lot of money because I was getting a consistent paycheck every couple weeks or every month. A lot of you can relate to that. It's like, yeah, no, it's not very much, but at least it's consistent. And up to that point in my life, I had always driven like the most beater, terrible vehicles. In fact, the last vehicle that I owned at that point was a 1987 Pontiac Grand Am that had more rust than any vehicle I have ever seen in my life. In fact, after I bought that car, about two weeks later, uh, me and a group of buddies, we went on a mission trip to Brazil, and one of the goals we had set for ourselves was, okay, we are going to find a car that's worse than your car in a third world country. 
We didn't find it. it. It was the worst car I've ever seen running, and that's no exaggeration. Bought it for $400, I drove it about two and a half years, and then sold it actually for $400. So maybe I shouldn't dog on it all that much, but a $400 vehicle. So knowing that I was gonna be married in about a year, uh, knowing that my, my wife and I were engaged, I, I didn't want her to drive around this beater, so I was like, I'm gonna buy us a car that, that we're not embarrassed to get into. And so I went to this dealership fully anticipating I was gonna buy this Honda Accord, but wouldn't you know it, in the corner of a lot, there was this Audi A4 that caught my eye. And I was like, I think I can afford that. Like, yeah, I, I could afford to buy that. And I was like, that'd be cool. And I talked myself into it. And off I drove in, in this vehicle, not realizing that you have to maintain what you obtain. And while I certainly could afford the vehicle on the front end, I did not realize that vehicles like Mercedes and BMW and Audi have some of the most brutal routine maintenance I've ever heard of in my life. Why would an oil change cost 180 bucks? That does not make any sense to me. It does not matter how many free Milano cookies you give me in the lobby. I'm still ticked off about that. And so I drove that vehicle for a year and a half and then eventually just took a bath on it and unloaded it because I could not maintain what I had obtained. The bank might be telling you that, yeah, you can't afford the house. We will give you the loan for the house. But remember, you have to maintain what you obtain, and you certainly don't want to be house poor. And God is telling the Israelites, and he's telling all of us, trust me, little by little. It's the exact same message all these years later. Victory isn't one thing, and you're undefeated. Victory is a small thing, continually repeated. And so we've been asking you throughout this series, where do you want to be? Honestly, think about that. Where do you want to be five years from now? When we talked about this in the first week. I, I mentioned learning a new language. And some of you, that struck a chord. You're like, all right, I know. I have that information circling around in my head. I, I took that language class in college or in high school. I'm finally going to learn that new language. Some of you want to lose a little bit of weight. You want to get into better shape. You want to develop some new hobbies. Some of you parents, you're like, I just want to be a better parent. And if you're ever going to get there, you have to make these steps smaller. And so for the rest of our time together, we're, we're going to get really, really practical. And we're going to talk about getting small. Let's make our habits, as, as we mentioned earlier, too small to fail. If you're going to get to that 1,000 mile mark, we have to make the habits so incredibly tiny that you're actually going to do them. Because let's be honest, it's not that you're dreaming too much. It's not that you're planning too much. It's not that you're hoping too much. It's that we make our goals so big and so grandiose that it becomes next to impossible to actually keep up with them for an extended period of time. So, so here's my challenge for you this morning. It's only one challenge, it's pretty simple, and it's gonna be far from a Tony Robbins speech that you will hear. Make your goals stupidly small. I mean, almost embarrassingly small. We come across those videos on Facebook and on YouTube and like Dwayne The Rock Johnson's talking about us and there's some dramatic music playing in the background. It's like, dream big, reach for the stars. Nope, I'm telling you the opposite of that. Make it simple. Make it like stupidly small. How many of you, by a show of hands, actually want you to participate in this, how many of you have, have ever had any sort of internal battle as it relates to working out? Come on, be honest. Ever had that internal battle with yourself? I want to, okay, you put your hands up. That's just about everyone, and let's be honest, the people didn't put their hands up, they're having that battle right now. They're like, I don't really count yet because I don't know if I've won or not. But you've had that battle before. We, we've all had that internal battle about working out, and it probably for every single one of us looks about the same way. You get home from work, you get done eating dinner, and you're like, shouldn't I eat like eight plates of fettuccine Alfredo? 
feeling a little lethargic and you're like, kind of have that internal like, okay, I can do it, I can do it. And then you start to think through all the things you have to do to even get to the gym. You're like, okay, I gotta go into my bedroom, I gotta change my clothes, then I gotta get into my car and then I gotta drive to the gym and then, ugh, I gotta stretch, I hate stretching. Then I get on the treadmill and I gotta pretend like I'm in decent shape even though I'm having a heart attack after 30 seconds. It's embarrassing if I come home too early so then I gotta go like drive around the neighborhood so my wife doesn't think less of me, okay? And then I come home and I'm a little sweaty so I get in the shower and by the time I go through all this, I'm just so tired that I just wanna go to bed and just boom, just like that, my night shot. So a lot of you, you know, like you have become professionals at making excuses as to why you're not gonna work out and I think it's because you're setting your goals too high. So how about you make it simpler? How about you say instead, okay, I'm going to do 100 push-ups a night, but that's not small enough, right? Because you know yourself well enough. You do 100 push-ups in one night, you're not going to be able to lift your arm above here for like (laughs) two weeks. And so boom, your goal fails again. So how about you make your goal, as we're saying here, stupid small. You say, I am going to literally do one push-up a night. You do not even have to change your clothes to do one push-up a night. In fact, that goal is so embarrassingly small that you'd be embarrassed not to do it, right? I mean, you'd have that internal debate on the couch and you're like, I can do one push-up. I mean, it's one. And so you get down and you'd be like, okay, here, one. But what'll happen is you'll get down there and you'll do one and you're like, I can do one. And you'll go, all right, I'm going to rip off a couple more. You go, one, you go, two, you go, three, and you'll do a couple more of those push-ups. I practiced that. Don't worry. Because again, it's so small and okay, that first night, maybe you only do three, but maybe the next day you do five. And before you know it, you're doing like two sets of 10 by the end of a couple weeks. And after that, you know, you're doing some wide stance, you're doing some narrow stance, you're doing some diamonds, you're clapping. I mean, you're knocking it all out. You guys should clap for that. That was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I'm done because I'm out of breath. Have a good day. No, okay. You make the goal stupidly small, and as we talked about last week, the momentum slowly begins to take over. One of the challenges that we we talked about in that first week was like reading more. And a lot of you, I, I have no doubt that you probably do want to read more, but only one out of three college graduates read a book last year. Isn't that crazy? The vast majority of people just do not read. And I think it has something to do with the fact that we set the goals too high. You've made this goal of, I'm gonna read 30 minutes a night. I'm going to read one book a month, which isn't specific enough, and we'll talk about that here in just a second. So make that goal stupidly small. What if you said, okay, I'm going to read two pages a night. I don't care how busy you are. Every single one of us has time to read two pages a night. That would take you less than four minutes. And you know what will happen? Just like with the push-ups. You'll get to the end of that second page, and the sentence ain't even over. And you're like, well, I'm not going to stop there. I mean, that's, that's not even a complete thought. And you'd flip the page and you'd feel like, oh my gosh, I'm breaking some rules here. And you go to the other side and then you'd be like, well, this is kind of an interesting book. And you'll read at least till the end of the paragraph. And after keeping at this for a couple months, you actually will be reading 30 minutes a night, even though your goal has only been to read two pages a night. For those of you that want to learn that language, you've tried Rosetta Stone. You've watched the YouTube videos. You say, I'm gonna take 30 minutes every night. Again, too big, make it stupidly small. Say, I am just going to memorize a single word a night. And I'm telling you, even as simple as that is, if you keep at it, one word a night, and allow momentum to begin to take over, at the end of five years, you will be fluent in that language. A lot of you, you you wanna grow closer to God. In fact, I think a lot of people, by virtue of the fact that you're even here today with us, you would acknowledge that. You'd say, yeah, I, I want to know more about this relationship thing. And one of the most common questions I get is, okay, how do I actually trust God? How does my faith begin to grow? 
And I would challenge you the same thing. Make, make your goals stupidly small. What if every person in this room, every person in particular that isn't spending daily time with God, what if you just set your alarm five minutes earlier in the morning? I don't care how early you get up. Five minutes is not going to be the make or break as to whether you are a grouch the next day. Five minutes a day. You download the YouVersion app. Every single one of you should have that thing on your phone. It's a free Bible app called YouVersion. They even have it available for Android devices, which is mind blow, right? <laughs> download that thing. At least read the daily verse every single morning. Ask yourself the question, okay, how does that affect my life? What, what, what value does that, does that say to me? What, what is God trying to say to me through that one verse? And spend just a couple minutes talking to God, sharing honest feelings with him. You'll be shocked at what changes in your life by that simple step of just saying, God, I am gonna give you my first of every day. I'm gonna give you the best part of my day, even if it's just five minutes, because here's what I know will happen. God will start to do things in your life. And by the end of a month, you'll be like, all right, I think I can do 15 minutes. And as time goes on, you'll eventually be at 30. And then you'll eventually be at an hour. And then you'll be trying to get to bed earlier at night so that you have more time to spend with your creator because it's actually turned into a relationship. Stupid, small, too small to fail. Now, a word of warning. Uh, I think we often get discouraged by the little. In fact, I know that we do, by the small because paying the minimum credit card payment doesn't even cover the interest. You, you try to stop drinking and yeah, you have a week of sobriety under your belt, but unfortunately you still have that urge to drink. We despise the little because we all want instant progress. And so we don't end up sticking with anything long enough to actually see significant impact. But friends, this is how life works. And you in fact know this. I did not need to tell you this because your life, Christian or not, has shown you this. This isn't a Christian thing. This is a human being thing. It's little by little. Slow and steady wins the race. And so four last tips here, and then I'll, I'll jump off the stage here. Four last tips I want to kind of leave you with here this morning as we think about making your goals stupidly small. Number one is choose carefully. Not all goals are created equal. Research actually says that there are certain habits that can actually transform the rest of your life. There's essentially kind of this spillover effect. They, they commonly refer to these as keystone habits. I challenge you to these, Google these for yourself. There, there's a lot of them, but I wrote down just a handful of them. Uh, family dinners, making your bed. There's actually a very direct, and this is fascinating reading this this week, that there's a direct co correlation uh, with making your bed and reducing debt that people that make their bed statistically have far less debt than those who do not. You might say, well, that can't possibly be related. Again, it's why they call them keystone habits. Exercising, tracking what you eat, saving a percentage of your income. These will have this cascading effect into other parts of your life. One of the more common questions I get from people is like, again, that same question, okay, how do I grow closer to God? When do you spend time with God? I don't care where you're at on this whole faith journey. I advocate that everyone spend the first part of their day with God. Again, even if it's only five minutes, because it has such a cascading effect on the rest of our day. When I don't spend time with God in the morning, it affects my marriage. It affects how I talk to my coworkers. It affects my relationship with my kids. It's a keystone habit. It affects other parts. Number two is this, spell it out specifically. Make a concrete plan. No vague terminology. You can't let your goal be, well, I'm gonna eat better. Well, you're gonna eat better than who? Well, I don't know, I'm just, I'm gonna eat better. Well, 
I'm looking at you and it doesn't seem like you're eating very healthy. So who are you eating better than? The hamburglar? Congratulations. How about you make it specific, like laser focused? Like you say, I am not going to take a bite of food no matter what past 8 p.m. and I will only drink water. With a goal like that, th that is very concrete. You can't find loopholes with that. Some of you will say, well, I'm not going to buy things. And you've tried this. I'm not going to buy things that I don't need. That will not work. It is far too vague because we as human beings are capable of endless self-deception. We will get in the moment and we know this about ourselves. You will talk yourself into it. You will rationalize it. But there are no loopholes and I am not going to buy a single article of clothing for an entire year. Some of you women, you're like, gosh, that really freaks me out because I won't have enough clothes. Yes, you will. You, you would have enough clothes to give every orphan in the entire country of Africa an outfit and you would still have some left over. Number three, track it diligently. And this is so, so important because if you're not keeping score, you are just practicing. You will quickly lose interest. Think about it. When you go over to somebody's house and everybody's like kind of huddled around the TV and you know that they're watching a game and it's on a commercial, what's a question that somebody always asks? What's the score, right? What's the score? If you're not keeping score, you will lose interest. Uh, my wife, about a year and a half ago, she decided that she wanted to go on a diet, which I was just like, honey, that is the stupidest idea ever. You are a goddess. Why would a goddess go on a diet? I mean, how do you make what's already perfect, perfecter? I mean, I just don't understand this, but she's like insistent. And so one of the things that really made her actually stick to a diet, uh, and I really admired her, for, I admired her for this, is that she wrote literally everything down that she eated. That she eated? <laughs> it's fantastic English. Uh, everything that she ate. Uh, and from the big, obviously the meals she would write down, but she also wrote down the little things. She'd write down, crud, I ate three Honey Nut Cheerios out of my son's bowl. I went by the cupboard and yeah, I snuck four M&Ms. She would write down everything. Some of you, again, you're like, I've done that before. No, you haven't. Because again, you walk past the receptionist's desk and you eat that fun size Snickers. You're like, that ain't making it on the list. <laughs> write down everything. And then another thing she did, she took it a step further. She put it in a place that she knew that I would see it every day. And she asked me to intentionally look at it for accountability. And she said, if you see something on there or I, I ate something and you don't see it on that piece of paper, I want you to actually call me on it. There's a real science as to why people in programs like Alcoholics Anonymous track the number of days that they've been sober. Keeping score keeps you engaged. And then lastly, guard it aggressively. Guard it aggressively. You guard aggressively the days that you're linking together. They actually refer to this commonly as the Seinfeld method. For those of you that Jerry Seinfeld's a comedian, and early on in his, uh, in his comedy career, he had this massive wall calendar that he put in his apartment, like big, you know, it covered the entire year, you know, January all the way through December. And his goal was to just write one joke every single day. Even though he knew he was going to have to fill an entire monologue, even though down the road he was going to have to fill entire seasons of television shows, he said, I am just going to write one joke a day, and every single day that I write a joke, I'm going to put an X on the calendar. And his goal was to string together as many days as he possibly could. Get a calendar. Track it. Guard it. Guard the momentum. Don't ever allow yourself to go two consecutive days in the opposite direction. When you link two days together in the opposite direction, that is habit suicide. There are going to be days that come up that you are just like deathly ill and you're like, I cannot physically do this, but don't ever let it happen two days in a row because then you are on your way in the opposite direction that you don't want to be, little by little. And over time, 
Even though it seems so small now, it will eventually become a lot. There's another book that we find uh, in the Old Testament called Job. And if you've never read Job, some of you thought, man, I thought it was Job. I'm going to learn how to get a job. No, it's Job. Uh, and there's this guy named Job in the, in the Old Testament. It's a true story. Uh, and over a really short period of time, Job had basically everything stripped away from him. His family, his wealth, his influence in his community. I mean, everything just in an instant seemed to be taken away from Job. And in one of these moments where he's talking to a friend and he's like, I can't believe what has happened to my life. His friend encourages him and says, and though you started with little, you will end with much. Though, Job, you have reached rock bottom, little by little start chipping away at it and you will end with much. Listen, I don't want this to get confused to be like this motivational speech with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in. Here's my real heart behind this. This doesn't ring anywhere more true than as it relates to our relationship with our Heavenly Father, which is something that I want so desperately for every single one of you because your life is just better with Jesus in it, plain and simple. My life's never been better than it is right now and I'm closer to God than ever before and that's certainly not a coincidence. And if you're wondering, okay, how do I grow in my faith? How do I trust God more? There's not a secret sauce. There's not some magical prayer that we pray over you. It's nothing like that. It's, it's little by little. You start trusting God with the little and, and he will come through. And then the next time he tells you to take the next step, that that next thing, you'll go, I, I guess he came through the last time. So yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll try that. And little by little, your trust with God begins to grow and consequently your faith begins to grow and, and before you know it, you're five years down the road and God is asking you to take some enormous leap that in your mind five years earlier, you would have said not a chance. But because you've seen him come through now for, for five straight years, because you've seen him provide in the little, you're like, I guess I could take that step. He's been faithful the entire way so why wouldn't I trust him with this now? Though you started with little, you will end with much. Victory is a small thing continuously repeated. 